Hi everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I'm Colin, the main host. With me tonight, again, I have Kristen. Hello. Hello. And Kevin. Hi, everybody. So, folks, we are continuing our Legend of Korra discussion, and tonight we are following up with Episode 8, When Extremes Meet. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we're continuing our discussion. Uh, you know, we've been kind of doing these episodes in two-parters, and I think that especially these two go incredibly well hand-in-hand hand, um, in terms of the kind of plot points and uh, plot movements that we get for this. Um, so one of the first things we're going to talk about, hey, we are back to our old reliable announcer. Again, filling in the gaps. Uh, back to the old newsreel style. We are no longer getting uh, Tarlock, which, again, I think is just a testament to, you know, he was off peeing his pants and dealing with the uh, <laughs> <laughs> the equalists infiltrating there. And now he is he is back to being the old reliable narrator. Um, so, uh, of course, th- this episode starts off with uh, you know, Korra, Mako, and Bolin uh, arriving back at Air Temple Island, um, and Asami as well, where they're going to be staying. Uh, and what a great moment. We have the airbending kids, and my goodness, what a great collection of moments we get from them. So, I, Kristen, you said uh, you had some thoughts uh, on this opening scene with the airbending kids. <laughs> I totally did. I totally did. Because upon watching it again, when Milo asked Asami for her hair, I don't know how I didn't make a Gimli and Galadriel connection to that moment. Oh my God. It's such a perfect moment for it because, you know, it, and it wouldn't surprise me if Mike and Brian were Lord of the Rings fans enough to actually put, you know, that kind of suggestion in there, that kind of like little fan service, because they totally would be those kinds of nerds. And it's it's such a great moment for it because it's the same thing. It's that same lovesick puppy struck moment with this very beautiful, enchanting looking person. And it's just so amazingly adorable. And looking back on it now, I don't know how I didn't make the Lord of the Rings connection <laughs> to that moment because it's so perfect. I asked her for one. She gave me three. Ah, oh, gosh, mm. what a beautiful moment. I love Gimli so much. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is such a great moment. You know, uh, they are telling them about the uh, about the island, and we get this great, fantastic line, uh, this exchange between Iki and Bolin, and Bolin's just like, okay, I have some questions. Like, is this island vegetarian? Do we get our own bison? Do we get this? Do we get that? And how many trees on the island? And without missing a beat, Iki just responds to every one of those questions. And then the tree one, she's like, 10,522. And it's just like this, uh, okay, well, we know what kind of a kid that Iki is. <laughs> Iki is an amazing human being. And yes, I, she I, is. <laughs> I appreciate how much more she's appreciated later in the series, but I feel like her role as the comic relief really downplays how amazing she is. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, it's it's interesting the roles that they kind of fit because obviously Janora is, you know, trying to be the, you know, very, you know, collected and cool older sister who is trying to be a good example for her younger brother and sister and Iki is that middle child where she's just like I don't care I'm just gonna like learn everything that I can and I'm gonna be myself to the umph degree and 
you know, she has to have a big personality because she's got Janora being the, you know, very perfect older sister and Milo being this like crazy little younger brother who's just like fart bending at every opportunity that he gets. <laughs> Which to be fair is a relatively new skill and I feel like he should have deserved his arrows a little sooner. <laughs> I know, right? That is that's clearly his like his thing, but it's like he got to that tier of uh of the 36 tiers, a little, a little head of schedule. <laughs> um, I mean, the fact that he can bend the sulfur of the human body <laughs> is pretty impressive. <laughs> oh gosh. So good. Um, and you know, of course they, they make their way in, um, and we get hands down one of the just like funniest still frames that is, I mean, it's used for so many gifts and memes and it is when Iki says, Hey, Asami, did you know Korra likes Mako? And it goes to Korra and in the style of so many amazing animes, her jaw drops, her eyes widen and her pupils go like as small as tiny dots as like lightning and like clouds and everything erupts in the background (laughs) behind her. (laughs) God, what a moment. It's so good. And it's it's very Aang-esque too because Aang had such extreme reactions to things, and you know, for him it was because he was a child. Of course, he was going to have strong reactions to things. There's still a lot new in the world for him, especially as a child who was confined to an air temple. But Korra, of all people, being older, well traveled, and all this stuff, the fact that she still has the same reactions is just so funny. Well, it's it's like it's now where you know Aang was like you know young kid reacting to the world. This is Korra reacting to like uh, like teena- social teenager social anxiety and like you know awkwardness. <laughs> <laughs> oh man and we then, all know those feels oh yes uh but of course Korra takes uh asami into the room and iki wants to follow and Korra just shuts the doors in front of her and we get another great like anime moment from iki as she like her like teeth get sharp sharpened and her hands turn to claws and we hear these like <laughs> she's like swiping <laughs> towards her <laughs> Uh, it's just it's a great I, I loved it because it's such a nod to like the roots of this show and the original inspiration. So many of the shows that inspired them and that Mike and Brian worked on before, like Invader Zim, like Fooly Cooly, and just I mean, that is where so much of the show has its roots. And it's great to see those moments because they haven't forgotten where they've came from. Um and uh Susan's note for uh for Iki's line here was awkward. This is about a. This is about as bad as my king. Uh, sorry, this is about as bad as my kid singing the K I S S I N G song about me and her dad in public <laughs> loudly at the mall. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is the price you pay for having children. Let's be real. Yep. I mean, Tenzin's paying his dues for having kids. Four of them, no less. I mean, there are dues to pay when you have kids, and it is that these children will find ways of just absolutely shaming you in public without even trying. It's true. That's how, that's why you got to get them first. Dress them up real funny. Do things that they can't stop you from. And then take photos. Yes. <laughs> they will live with you forever. As then... I say, you mean every one-year-old's first year of life? <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, man. 
Um, you know, so we get this kind of nice, nice touching scene between, uh, you know, Korra and Asami and, you know, Korra saying how, you know, it's, I know it's not probably what you're used to with everything. And, uh, you know, Asami's just being like, well, it doesn't remind me anything of my father. And again, it's that just reality that she is dealing with a world where she is basically on her own. What family she had, she is now turned away from. And it's kind of living with those emotions. And it's, it's a powerful moment. Um, but of course, there's a knock on the door and Korra thinks that it's Iki and goes to the door. But it is Tenzin uh, telling them that now Saikon has taken over as the new police chief. Um, and that they should probably attend uh, and be there for his coronation. So that brings us to the scene where Saikon is promoted. Uh, he is the new police uh, chief of police, and he is giving this speech about how, you know, the equalists are really kind of pushing the boundaries and that we really need, like, strength and unity right now. But his speech turns into, well, the one person who has made a difference with this is Councilman Tarlock, and we'll be investing all resources we can into his task force. And suddenly we see, ah, there it is. We all knew that Tarlock was playing the game and that he was trying to get what he needed to be able to accomplish his goals. And this is the fruits of it. He knew that he was going to be able to try to get Lynn out of power. And now that she stepped down, his time has come. He's got an in. He's got someone that is basically in his pocket. And... <sighs> This is the position that we're left in. And amazingly, Tenzin calls him out on it, you know? Or, sorry, Korra calls him out on it. And, you know, you played you played Tenzin, you played me, and you played Lin, and now it's like you're playing the city with everything. And she goes in on him hard. But then Tarlock, what makes him such a great antagonist for this season as well, is just how smooth... And how deadly his clapbacks are. Tell me, Avatar Korra, how is your airbending training going? And that knife uh, digs deep. That digs deep. Ah, so, so some of your thoughts on kind of this scene, Saikon's promotion, and uh, Tarlock kind of seeing the fruits of uh, these kind of long plays that he's been working on. I have to give Mike and Brian props for creating such a hateable character with such a perfectly animated shit eating grin like <laughs> there is there is no way to not hate tarlock and you know he's too easily painted i remember the conspiracies that he was among i remember those conspiracies because all of us are like it's so obvious what he's doing is going to inflame the non-benders anger like he has to be a mon like all of us felt that way because he was just so terrible and seemed so evil. It seemed like he was the obvious choice. But as Mike and Brian proved to us time and time again, it's never that straightforward. Mm, definitely. Kevin? It's funny. Now he has in power this different police chief. And it's almost like watching when Putin has someone else as uh, president of Russia. It's like, oh, well, that's cute. <laughs> we, we really know who's in power here. Yeah. <laughs> That's very true. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the scene concludes and we get this really nice, peaceful scene um, of 
Tenzin and Korra flying back on Ugi. And it, it, I don't know. It's just when you, again, it's this nod to the past, but it's not overt. And you forget about those just peaceful moments of discussion flying through the skies on a sky bison. And, you know, Korra is feeling low after that accusation from, you know, from Tarlock. Like, I can't even, like, not even a puff of air. I can't do this. And, you know, Tenzin's like, oh, you'll be able to get past this airbending block in time. And she's like, well, that's very helpful. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, then he asks her, have you tried connecting with your past lives? That's what Aang did before. And she's like, well, she's like, didn't you get the, the memo that I'm terrible at being a spiritual avatar as well? And Tenzin says, he's like, well, sometimes, you know, visions or things like that. And Korra says, well, I did have these like hallucinations. And we see Tenzin's head perk up. And it is definitely kind of this recognition of like, oh, wow. Now, like this is happening for her. And I think it's like a big moment, too, for him, because it's he is realizing and understanding not only is he her airbending trainer, he's also kind of, you know, her avatar, (laughs) like, you know, trainer as well, because he has the most direct experience with an avatar than anyone else. And I just, I love the scene. It was just, it was very touching. And I I just love the scenes between uh, Tenzin and Korra. But did you guys have any, have any thoughts on this and kind of uh, how they accented this relationship? I didn't think about the way you had mentioned it, which is true that he's had the most experience with an avatar than anyone else has at this point, given that his interaction with his dad was what it was. Mm. Yeah, that's, no, it's just like a really cool thought. And getting to, and he's essentially our connection between the two worlds, because, I mean, Katara is around, but she isn't here um, for most of the series. So being able to see him bridging like the knowledge he has of his father and what his father did and what his father could do. It's cool to see that, like, you know, Korra has someone who could teach her all these things, whereas Aang was just kind of off in the wilderness. Mm. And it is kind of our first, like, discussion towards the spiritual aspect, too, because, you know, with the opening episode and the series so far, it has been very heavily focused on her her just getting the bending aspects right. Um, we haven't really had a serious discussion about her spirituality or lack thereof. Um, it just hasn't really been discussed in any big capacity. And we know what the Avatar is supposed to be capable of based on what we know from Aang, and we see none of that from Korra yet. So it it, it is nice that we're finally getting some hints that, hey, you know, we didn't forget about this, and also this might be something that we're going to start leaning towards too because it does become very important eventually. Um, if not arguably the most important thing about the Avatar is their spirituality. So that's a pretty big chunk of her identity as the Avatar that's missing. I feel like bending, even though there's four different uh, bending styles to, to learn and master, is really only half of what being the Avatar is because the last series taught us that they are a bridge between the spirit world, which is a pretty hefty title. Mm. Um, and we're not seeing that from Korra yet. We've seen zero spirituality or zero interactions with the spirit world. So it's uh, it's 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 a nice kind of 
nudge that, yes, we know that this is a thing. No, we didn't forget it. And this will come back because we know that they don't forget this stuff. Yeah, definitely. You know, which leads us to another scene where Cora is by herself and she's crying. And, you know, she is feeling alone as Bolin, Mako and Asami, you know, approach her. Even she says, she's like, I, I'm just, I'm the worst avatar. I, I can't even airbend and I just feel so alone. And, you know, I don't know. It's interesting because you know, we get Bolin and the team to, you know, of course, have this you know moment where they're lifting her up and saying like, hey, look, you know, you're, you're with us and learning from the lessons of the past. And Bolin saying like, or Mako saying like, look, like even like Aang had his friends. They like he, they helped him. And which I I think is so valuable in this moment. But I think, you know, now that you brought up that initial Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, kind of comparison, I, I think that there is, you know, the words of Galadriel, I think are very poignant in this moment. Instead of to be a ring bearer is to be alone. I think to be an avatar is also to be alone. You can surround yourself with people, but at the end of the day, it is such an individual responsibility and the decisions that you have to make and this great power and great responsibility that comes along with it. You know, and this is what we're seeing Korra kind of like really grappling with over the course of this season. She is seen up to the beginning of the series growing up, being the Avatar as just being awesome. She gets to do multiple forms of bending. She gets to like do really cool stuff and she has these innate abilities. But again, I don't think it was what she was expecting. And to know that she has gone through life being so good at all of these like forms of bending and being really great at all this other stuff. And now understanding that it is airbending and the spiritual side that she needs most and that she isn't good at it is a huge clash with her, you know, what she has kind of built up with her identity there. So I don't know, just the kind of thoughts on that. And then also, you know, the way that Bolin and the crew uh, kind of lift her up in this scene. So are you suggesting that this was her, I will take the ring to Mordor moment? (laughs) I think that comes later. I definitely think that we do get that moment, but it is, it is much later in the series. That's fair. That's fair. But I, I think you're right. I do think that, you know, while it's obviously important for the avatar to have support, um, and we've seen that in both series that, you know, the friendships that are formed are, are the most important aspects of the avatar's lives. Um, but at the same time, you know, nobody can do what she does. It's not like somebody can step in and say, Hey, I'll do this. And you take a break. Like, and we see that throughout the series too, where people step in and they're like, you know, rest Cora, take a break. I've got this. You don't have to worry about this. We see that constantly. And yet, no, Cora can't just step away from these things. This is a very specific responsibility laid very heavily on one individual, and it's not easy. It's incredibly stressful, and it does feel like Cora's starting to realize that, that while she started out as this very ambitious and spunky individual who is very cocky and prideful, um, life in the city and the issues she's facing have torn her down 
pretty quickly, which isn't necessarily bad. She kind of needed a little bit of humble pie. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to tear her down too much because we don't need an avatar who constantly second guesses herself. Confidence is important, just not pride. And, you know, she's obviously going through the one of the harder parts of her realization as far as what she needs to do, not just to be the avatar, but how her life is is going to be impacted. What, you know, it's it's nice that she has you know, all of these friends surrounding her and supporting her. But at the end of the day, all of the responsibilities and all of that pressure still falls on her shoulders. And it's, it's not something to be taken lightly. Mm. Very true. It is interesting. And, uh, the, our episode, uh, the interview that I did with Dave Roman, one of the initial pitches for avatar, at least how kind of Nickelodeon branded it was, uh, if you like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer in Studio Ghibli, then you're gonna love Avatar: The Last Airbender. And you know what? that was the Venn diagram. They yes, yeah. What? Isn't that crazy? I don't even know how. <laughs> like, if you think about it, though, there's a lot of crossover and there's a lot of connection there. I'm and I, sorry, I remember the final season of Buffy and I have I am not seen not it yet sure. I have not seen it yet so oh I God. I'm only I'm only on the fourth season I have only just finished oh the fourth season it, it is not kid-friendly I'm just gonna I mean I know most of Buffy's not kid-friendly even though it was marketed towards like teens at least but it is I mean I, I guess I get it like Cora does get dark but this is if we're talking about Aang though like the original Avatar series yeah. not even remotely (laughs) what is wrong with them i know so but the thing is though is that i think that the idea of buffy being the slayer and having this you know she's alone um of course you know faith comes along at some point but still i mean the thing is is that it is this idea that she is grappling with this situation that she can never truly step away from it that this is the life that she has kind of been born into and she can't run away from it and it's i think in this moment too for cora is realizing that you know she has to learn how to be a fully realized avatar or she's not going to be the avatar at all and that 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 is going to bring us to you know and without kind of jumping ahead too much you know where she is at at the very end of this season and i think that that is something to keep in mind with our discussion because again, it all is tied into how Cora has this identity and her self worth and what she is, you know, really how she sees herself. Um, but of course, you know, to kind of move on, we, you know, Bolin announces the new team avatar and we get this hilarious moment where, you know, they're all gathered in, they're all ready, uh, all suited up, and Asami's got the electric glove. And they're like, all right, let's go. And they all hop on Naga. And Bolin's just like, Naga, wait. And like, Naga just <laughs> collapses under the weight of four humans on top of her. And they all just go like spilling off of her. <laughs> oh, goodness. It's poor like, Naga. I know. Poor girl. <laughs> it's like, you know, Appa really did have a hard job. He had to. Uh, he had to he had to really put the team on his back again and again and again. <laughs> <laughs> but at least they were little kids versus like 
these teenagers and yeah. compared to size, <laughs> like office size versus Nagas, it's like, oh my God. Like, We've already seen how much uh, ramen bowling could throw back. I think it was a little too much. For... <laughs> oh man. But of course, you know, it's just like, all right, well, that's not going to work. But Asami's like, I think I have an idea. And now here we are, Team Avatar 2.0. From flying bison, from flying bison, to a hot rod car, and man, is that car so freaking badass! <laughs> like that design of it is so cool, and like the way that Asami just like drifts over, peels it back, is just like you think this will do. <laughs> oh man! So of course, now we get into. As I put it in the outline here, too fast, too furious, Republic City Drift. (laughs) (laughs) Because my goodness, do we get some amazing action on the move scenes, uh, you know, with this, which is, this is so cool. Like Mike and Brian, like they dealt with a show originally where like cars did not exist and you had like maybe, you know, you had the gondola at the Boiling Rock or you had like the train at Bossing Say, but like, no, now we're dealing with like legit car chases and this is... I think that they pulled it off so well. Um, I mean, it, it is such an incredible collection of scenes as, you know, as they're driving through Mako shooting out lightning, Bolin bringing in these like just kind of earthen projectiles and Korra sending out fire blasts. And it's just like, it's such a great combination of using the elements while on the move. And then on top of that, Asami's, insane driving abilities in adapting so quickly calling the shots give me a ramp help me make this turn i mean it is such an amazing feat of individual skill and teamwork um so i don't know did you guys have some like favorite parts uh from this kind of this whole car chase scene and like uh from what you saw there like you said, it's really cool getting to watch them play with different kinds of animation. Because what was the fastest that things went in the last series? Unless it was a projectile. You know, mm. a very quick walk. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so now they get to... That's why I love like them getting you know the transition from Naga, who's you know, the big dog, essentially, to, you know, which was a comparable to a flying bison, like in the old series, to the hot rod car. So it's like the transition from old to new... Uh, not only for the characters on the show, but like you said, for the animators, which is every time they get a chance to show, like, here's the new stuff we get to play with. They go for it. Mm, I love them showing off the new toys. <laughs> and and I think that's a really big thing, too, is it really kind of emphasizes how not just how different Korra is from the original series, but how different the world itself is. Like, this is a big step up from, like, the lizards that Azula rode while she was chasing the Aang or like ostrich horses and all that stuff. Like we did, this is a completely different feel. It's not just the fact that it's very 1920s esque, but you know, just the fact that there is technology, it does really change the dynamics of, you know, how these encounters occur. Yeah, Mm. definitely for sure. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to The Legend of Portalcast. Um, just wanted to take this time to update you guys. I know we've been talking about uh, we're going to be releasing our discussion on Imbalance. Uh, unfortunately, some things got kind of scheduled around uh, and 
couldn't make that happen, uh, so we're going to be delaying that by one week, but uh, we've got a really special episode coming out next week, and uh, very eager for you guys to listen to. It's going to be an Avatar episode discussion, but uh, with some good friends of mine who uh, my love of Avatar goes back a very long time and was responsible for helping me make friends in college. Uh, so I really am excited to be able to record that this week and, uh, hope you guys are excited for that, but we will be getting back to imbalance, uh, the week after that. Thank you all so much again for your support and, uh, enjoy the rest of the show. Bye guys. Um, so of course, you know, it, it's a great moment of teamwork as we were saying, and then, you know, it concludes with this amazing victory. They apprehend the equalists and, you know, Tarlock and his task force arrive too late. And my goodness, that smug look on Cora's face, <laughs> she's saying like, <laughs> oh, well, we already apprehended them for you. I guess you were too late. <laughs> As Tarlock so walks away, it's super gratuitous. Oh, it's it's so great, it, and it's just like it's exactly what Cora needed to. And I think that that was great because her friends realizing that, like you know, she needed that. Um, and you know, but then this also is like one action where this is good. It leads to a reaction from Tarlock. Tarlock sees that. Cora and her friends can do this and he's thinking of like okay you have those powers and abilities what are my powers and his power is government which again I wrote in the notes what is this government I mean Tarlock making this just straight up fascist pitch of being like all right look we need to say that everybody who is a non-bender can't be out past this time. And if they are out, then lock them up without any kind of due process because, you know, they're all equalists. And it's just like this incredibly, I mean, you're it, right. It's, it makes it, me wonder what the rest of that console does. Like they must just be rubber stampers that are just in someone's pocket because they don't seem to do anything. Yeah. I mean, in that, again, it's, we talked about this in, a couple episodes ago in terms of our core reviews that again, you, you maybe don't have time to be able to have this, but this is something where I do wish we had some expansion because again, it is this kind of like back and forth between Tarlock and Tenzin. But at this point it's like, okay, we get it now. Like these people are in his pocket. We can almost expect what's going. I want to see like one or two of those councilmen like on the fence and that Tenzin has to like go out of his way to like, you know, lobby for his position and that, you know, there's, there's something there with just, you know, and how are they involved? Are the, uh, like these people, are they their constituents? And like that, that is the part that is always very mind boggling to me about this government is like, how are these people represented? Because, I mean, talking about locking up your own citizens and, you know, establishing this curfew based on, like, who you are, and there is no debate whatsoever, is, I mean, it's also kind of alarming. And, I mean, it makes sense that, you know, you do get this kind of shift eventually in Republic City's government 
at one point later on in the series because I think they finally realized that like, okay, there's definitely some issues here. Um, but I, I, I don't know. It just, what, how did you guys kind of react to that scene, especially like as adults? Because I know that like, even though I was in college when uh, Cora was airing, I've learned so much more about world leaders and history and the things that people do during wartime to have this kind of extra uh, contextual analysis of what Tarlock was doing and kind of his position in the powers that he had to be able to kind of make these. Yeah, I was going to say, this is very much like the show reflecting reality. I mean, we've literally seen this more than once <laughs> throughout mm-hmm. history. Like, he, this is the generic fit, pitfall of every government or person in power to suppress an opposition. And in oppressing this group, they just further anger, you know, the group that they're trying to oppress. I mean, the most recent example being uh, the World Wars. You know, we saw that. And this very much has that vibe because the 1920s is in between those two world wars. And as world war two proved the feelings of the first world war didn't just vanish. I mean, we're even seeing this now, like even though we had the civil rights movement, the issues didn't just vanish. You know, those things don't just go Mm. away. And unfortunately for them, they're not seeing necessarily a, a, a second, big upheaval because we didn't see this in the first series that there are some stories in between um nothing is big and on this scale uh as what's happening right now so this is the first big pushback on a major scale uh for a revolution from non-benders and what's probably the i mean it makes perfect sense that the benders would side with it what's confusing about it is the fact that tarlock is a non-bender and that he is advocating for the oppression of his own people essentially no tarlock's a bender though he's a waterbender we don't know that though i think so, we've no we we've definitely seen him bending at this point though we haven't uh, seen him blood bending but like uh, during when it. they were like in their task force and stuff yeah we did we did get to see him doing that part oh you're right you're right mm. um well, then, yeah, so basically what's happening is, as far as the people can see, is an all-bender council is essentially saying curfews, restrictions, like you said, no due process, just automatic arrest. Um, it, it this, is, this is literally just like World War II, essentially. And, you know, all you need now is a concentration camp. And it's it's... Oh, Mike Fire Nation Ryan did do that. Kind so of. hateable. Mm. They make him so hateable. It's yeah. too easy. Yeah, you're right. We should we should have all been very suspicious at this point of how <laughs> hateable he was. Because I get it. Like they made the Fire Lord like super easy to hate, but he was very far removed. We really didn't see anything from the Fire Lord until the very end. Um, but of course this plot doesn't draw out the way it did in the original series. Um, so it was it was it was too easy to hate him, and I should have been very suspicious of that. But I remember originally watching it, just falling right into it, just like, he is the worst, and he's got to go right now. Yeah. yeah. I, I fully agree with you there, Kristen. I was, like, thinking about it. It's, like, it's so true. It's This is just something that echoes through human history, which is, you know, a, some strong person ends up rallying against, like, some minority or some group as, the, like, a scapegoat, and then everyone sees this, you know, strong man in power and goes, oh, well, there was this confusion before where we're all like, well, that probably isn't a problem. Oh, but he, he's got the answer. Or she's got the answer. Let's 
throw our lot in with them mm. because uh, sometimes, you know, it, it fluctuates through history, but there are times when people want security and times people want freedom. Um, actually, I feel like in an alternative universe, this is V for Vendetta. Amon in the mask against Starlock. It's perfect. <laughs> That's a really good comparison. I like Especially that. Especially <laughs> with this, because it's like you said in your note, uh, we have in your notes, which is Tarlock does take this all of a sudden, like what we compare to like fascist pitch, which is the I'm going to assert control over this group of people so that way everyone else can live. And then it becomes this them versus us thing, which just, you know, as we've, uh, as was brought up in the show, even was that this just plays right into Amon's hands. Like mm-hmm. this just, it sets Amon up so perfectly because now all you're doing is fanning the flames. It's not really putting them out. Mm. Um, and like Kristen said, this this always happens in history where there's times where a government sees a threat to their power and they have one of two choices and it's embrace the change of revolution that's coming and then lose power or crush the opposition and maybe not lose power. And they usually opt for the second one. Mm. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it's very poignant too because I, I think that you know, Tarlock is also finding himself in this position of immense power. You know, he has played, you know, he's played the game and he has like played it successfully. And now he's at this point where he has control of the city. He has the police chief in his pocket. He has the resources he needs to be able to do everything. And if you have the military on your side and you have control of the government, then you can exert your will as you see fit. And that's the thing. There is no like checks and balances in this governmental system at all. And that's why he's able to kind of get away with this. But I want to dig into like, what do you think Tarlock's, you know, the deeper motivations and where this kind of comes from for him to, you know, make this call to, you know, impose this curfew and to really take this hard line because clearly he's a cunning antagonist sometimes blinded by his ambition but at the same time it's like you know is he not seeing both sides of this is this just like to move the narrative forward i don't know that's that's kind of what i want to dig into do you guys have any additional thoughts on that i feel like if it was the old show like with the earth king well i mean that person was obviously far more incompetent than tarlock um (laughs) you could just toss it up to oh it's just this person doing this thing whatever but I, I mean, as you saw in the episode before where, you know, the person uh, from the factory slipping the note and it wasn't it, and it was a full on setup. At this point, you have to distrust all motives of all people on this show, especially with the way things move. Like they're not just going to have some toss away character like Tarlock. Like he's got to mean something bigger. And if he's making steps like this, it's more likely that it leads to something else. Now, it's easy to say that now that I've seen the show, but you can tell like every every. And Tarlock at this point, like like you said, he played the game. Like every step he makes is very, um, I shouldn't not decisive, but methodical. It, methodical. Thank mm-hmm. you, Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's like there's a purpose behind everything. So if he's oppressing these people, it's not unlikely that there's a very that there's something much bigger in there that we don't know. Mm. And I agree, he can't be ignorant of this because we just had the Hundred Year War. And we know from experience how people reacted and felt to the oppression of the Fire Nation. So it's while what's happening in the story is new to the world as far as we know, what he's doing and the consequences of it aren't new. And it's definitely one of those things where it's like, you should know better. Yeah. So he definitely yeah, exactly. doesn't it's, seem like... Seems some, too deliberate to be... 
Exactly. He's not like an ignorant politician who doesn't realize what he's doing. But I think he's gambling a little bit too much Mm. for success. Like he feels like his power is so strong and so absolute. And to be fair, he does still have, you know, some cards up his sleeve with like the blood bending and everything. So I'm sure while we already see him as being this, you know, very powerful, uh, government you know a official that's abusing what he has you know we haven't even seen his final form essentially mm. and i love that description <laughs> <laughs> but it, it 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 kind of makes sense why he's so confident and cocky because he he does feel so probably invincible with his ability and knowing that his ability can do the things that it does um and we see later, like, especially how dangerous his father was to the Avatar. Mm. Um, he probably has a sense of invincibility that we can't recognize yet because we haven't seen why he's so confident, why he's okay with what he's doing. He is, you know, poorly wielding power. He's, he got overpowered very quickly over a very short period of time. It's a lot. He's wielding it very freely with little consideration for what feels like any kind of consequence and it doesn't make sense initially but it really does kind of fill in the gaps later and suddenly these huge power plays make more sense so after after tarlock makes this uh pitch and this law it gets instituted uh pretty much instantaneously and you know the next scene is team avatar rolling up and it is a, it is a, I mean, th- th- this scene gets me every time I see it. Um, it's this beautiful shot of them driving towards the city and it kind of pans up and we see the illuminated part of the city that they're in. And then we see a whole section of Republic City and the lights are out. And the scene that they arrive to is, it's seriously horrifying. You have a whole group of people all together and they are surrounded by metal bending cops. They're all non-benders and they are caught in this, this bind with, you know, being told like, you need to disperse, you need to go home. And they're like, we will go home, turn our power back on. And at this point, I think this is also like, this is Tarlock overplaying his hand. Because clearly this is the situation that he wants. Because he knows that what his end goal is not only to like, you know, institute this curfew, but I think also it's he's taking this as a personal grudge. Cora and the crew, like going in and arresting those equalists ahead of time was a blow to his pride. And now this is that backlash. And him directing this specifically towards Korra, because as this scene unfolds, it unfolds exactly as he anticipates it to. Um, Korra approaches and, you know, Tarlock says these people are out and the chief is yelling out to them. You all need to return to your homes. And then Korra is trying to mitigate the situation, telling them, like, look, you need to get the power back on. Let these people go home. And he's like, nope, they're equalists. If this was an equalist rally, and then he gives the order for the metal bending cops to round up this crowd. And I think that this is also 
I mean, we've seen some really cool stuff from metal bending, but I think that this is a perfect example of how sinister bending directed by the wrong people or used in the wrong hands can truly become something that is horrifying. Because when they bend those metal barriers around the groups of these people and lift them up into the air on these earthen rocks, they're trapped. They cannot do anything. And they have no way of defending themselves. And they are being arrested without due process. And I don't know, just like this scene, especially revisiting it as like as an older adult, like it really hit me hard. And I don't know. Did you guys have a similar experience? And what what was kind of your feelings like looking in on this scene? I now imagine how powerless non-benders are. It's like electricity was one of the things that gave them literally power and it's gone and they have nothing they can do. Mm. There's no way for them to fight back as effectively as they could if they were benders. So it's the most powerless, well, I shouldn't say powerless, but the not as powerful among the citizens are now left just completely desperate. It's like, it's like you said, he overplayed here. I mean, you have to know the end result of this. It's like, you're looking for, he's looking for a show of force, but against the people and Korra, but all it ends up doing is just stroking more tensions and, with the people and Cora, and Cora's going to be forced to do something. He had to have known that. Mm. And she goes off the handle all the time. I mean, she's <laughs> like, you just kind of have to expect that she's going to go. She's not going to take this lying down. Mm. Well, but I feel like he's hoping that he's going to cow her in, into submission, essentially, though. Like, yeah. you can see it. He had to get I mean, one extreme or the other, I guess. Exactly. And, like... When he when he first made that really crappy comment about, you know, how's your airbending going? Like, you can feel the dejection from Cora. Mm. And I think that's really what he's hoping to do is to kind of amplify that. You know, and when Cora had her victory in getting to the metal, metal bender or metal benders, the uh, the equalist first, it's not only a blow to his pride, but it, if you think about it, if he's playing the long game of getting Cora to submit and be part of his task force and follow his lead that independence she has is also a blow to that long-term plan of his. Mm. So, you know, in addition to needing to make a power play to show that it's not the avatar who's in charge, it's him. He also is trying to, you know, again, strike at her pride, most likely to make her feel weak and powerless the same way he's doing it to the people. You know, he is trying to cow everybody into submission and follow his lead. And, you know, he, as we keep saying, you know, he's he's going overboard. He may not realize it yet. And again, I know he's got that card up his sleeve that he feels like is is his big play. But he's making way too many enemies to survive this um, confrontation he's setting himself up for. You know, and it's it's really intense. The fact that he would so easily abuse his power and oppress people to. Bite a teenage girl really shows his lack of control of his emotions. It's like Tano. Tano hid behind his power, and when he was stripped of that, we saw who he really was. He was a very weak individual. And, you know, Tarlock's very much the same way. If he didn't have the power he had, you know, I very much doubt he would be doing the things he's doing. He wouldn't have this personality, but with all that power, he feels invincible and he is the epitome of everything Amon's fighting against. Mm, definitely. 
Yeah, and, and there, there's a really poignant moment from this scene, you know, before the uh, the folks are kind of like wrapped up and, uh, you know, taken in by the mental barriers. There's this woman, she's holding a child, and as Cora has arrived, she runs up to her and she pleads, you're our avatar too. And it hits that point home that the avatar is there for everybody, not just benders. And... I mean, it, it is it is a scary moment. And then, you know, Tano just, you know, sees the opportunity with Asami standing there, takes her in. And then, you know, with Mako and Bolin standing there, which like that, I think, again, was overplaying his hand. But still, you know, he arrests them and Korra lifts these huge boulders up. But then Mako says, it's not worth it, Korra. You just just don't. We'll be fine. And again, that that's where you need those friends. To be able to like give you that perspective. Because if Korra would have made that strike, imagine how much nastier that scene would have been and how that would have unfolded. Because suddenly it is a whole fight. But I think that that's what Tarlock was gambling on. That she wouldn't actually do that. I, I, but I don't know. I don't know. Do you guys think that that was kind of like what Tarlock was aiming for? Do you think that he would have, that she would have like, he was banking on her doing that or that she was going to, she was going to pull back from it. And I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if he was certainly edging towards provoking her in some way. I mean, there's a few different outcomes he gets from this. Either, as Chris was saying, he cows Cora, which is a net positive. He gets her to do something really dumb. And then he can assert power over her, which is a net positive for him. So really, the only, it's funny, actually, there's um, Tarlock and Cora here each have a tactical victory. Um but only Cora sees the final success of it by her not doing anything impatient here, thanks to her friends. Um, it seems like Tarlock won this. and But really, she ends up, I should correct this, Tarlock had two strate- tactical victories while Cora had the strategic one, which is Tarlock like, is like, okay, well, I kind of beat her here. Maybe I've cowed her. And Cora didn't do anything foolish. And then later on, Tarlock ends up revealing something that may have helped him win the battle against Korra temporarily, but ends up dooming him ultimately. Mm, definitely. So it's funny, Korra is not known for her patience. <laughs> and mm. thankfully her friends <laughs> encouraged it and it helped her here because otherwise, could you imagine the the backlash to her? Yeah, absolutely. And any violence that would have spilled over during that time, metal benders losing focus and suddenly those people drop to the ground. I mean... Tarlock is in control of the government. He's in control of the police force. Who's to say that he might not be in control of the press? All it takes is one bad news story to turn public opinion against the Avatar, like, completely around. Which I think is... Which we've seen happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, And of course, you know, this scene concludes, and uh, Tenzin and... uh, Cora go to the police station. There's this great moment where they confront uh, police chief Sycon. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Sycon's just like, you'll have to bring that up with uh, Councilman Tarlock at the, at the meeting. And Tenzin's just like, oh, I intend to. But uh, tomorrow morning at the council meeting. <laughs> it's like this is such a great retort. And, you know, and then as they leave, Tenzin turns around and like Cora's just like, you're, you're, you know, you're the worst. And as they're leaving, Tenzin, who could have just kept walking, 
we see a little bit of Katara come out in this moment. <laughs> you you really are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some of my favorite tens and moments where you clearly see so much of like that like that the last word in the rage that would come out of Katara in those moments. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it's a Katara and a Korra thing. I think Korra being around tends and brings out his inner Katara. <laughs> yes, that's so true. <laughs> uh, so that leads us to the, the final scenes of uh, this episode. And we see Tarlock in his office, which is like, holy crap, what a beautiful set. I mean, like, it's such an incredible design with, like, the waterfall and just, like, it it is that, I just love that set design and the art design for that so much. And he's there with his aide and uh, going over some papers and Cora opens the windows, wind blows in and the papers go flying. We need to talk. And Cora has this confrontation with, Tarlock and Cora says like don't you see what you're doing like this is the exact thing that like the non-benders are upset about is like about benders using their power to intimidate but Tarlock turns Cora's argument against her well that's what you're doing right here isn't it intimidating me and Again, it is that part of Tarlock where he just is always able to say that thing to disarm Korra in a moment where it seems like she has an advantage. In this case, it's temporary because Korra is bullish in terms of her convictions and the fact that she is, she feels this very passionately that what he is doing is wrong. And he says, look, you fall in line, I'll set your friends free. But Cora doesn't accept. And that leads to a fight. And boy, oh boy, is this a wonderful waterbending fight. I mean, it, like Tarlock using the waterfall behind him. It's it's such a great, I mean, they build up this like this beautiful room and this set and how it becomes part of the fight. And I think that any great action scene, and you look at like some of the best fight scenes in action movies like especially with like Jackie Chan so much of the power of his like fight scenes in his movies are using the environment around him as part of the fight whether it's like him using utilizing chairs if they're in a restaurant to be able to deflect or like parry someone or pin someone or if they're like you know crossing like a building with like a zip line or something like there's it's always using that it adds a whole nother dynamic layer to the fight and Korra sending out this fire blast and like Tarlock using the water from the waterfall to create the shield to fend that off then sending these icicles just tossed towards Korra she's getting hit by some but then she brings up the rock to deflect but then she knows take away the water take away his power and she brings the wall behind the waterfall crashing over towards Tarlock and it sends him flying into the other room. And there he is in the middle of the council chambers and Korra confronts him. You've run out of water. What are you going to do now? And we see her charging towards him with fire. 
And then he bloodbends. And, you know, when we were watching this, Abigail even made the point. She's like, I hate that sound effect of when bloodbending happens. It Mm. is so unsettling. It is just like, I don't know what they use for the sound design for that, but like you can just feel it because it it's is like when you watch like someone like break something on TV, you just, uh, you just know, or like someone hits their head. You just, mm-hmm. yeah, that crack, like mm-hmm. you just know. Oh yeah. So I, I, before we kind of dive into how this kind of concludes, uh, any, any thoughts on this fight between uh, Cora and Tarlock here? Did anybody else feel the parallel when it first... I mean, you talked about how beautiful Tarlock's office was. My first thought was the Fire Lord's chamber, how he was always surrounded by fire. And he was always... We were always seeing him in the throne room with the fire, essentially. Mm. Like, that's what I thought was him with his desk like a throne and the waterfall in the background. Like, he's always prepared for a fight. He's very confrontational. I didn't see something beautiful. I saw something practical for somebody who is highly confrontational and that's what we get. Wow. Mm. That is great. I love that. (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) Kevin, some of your thoughts, boy, man, that was a good one. I liked hers. Mine was more just a simple return to, like I was saying before, where, I mean, it's a brilliant move of Cora to take away the water bending, which would work 99% of the time. Um, because she can still use all the other elements. She's fine. Um, but this was that example I was talking about of Tarlock. Not it's one of the few times he plays his hand wrong, mm. and like yeah, he beat Korra this time. But as we see later, it ends up being one of the ways that he's unraveled. Mm. Yep. It's because he he was desperate to win this fight, and this is what it gets him. Yep. Because the thing is, it's like is Korra now we know blood. Yeah, I mean, it's it's Cora really going? Cora is not going. Like, is she going to kill him? Like, I I don't think that yeah, it's going exactly. to like get to that point. Maybe he thought that that might have been the case, but I think at the end mm-hmm. of the day, I don't know if he believed that she was going to kill him. But again, it's his pride. He can't lose yeah. this fight in yeah. his final form. That final card he has to play, his trump <laughs> card, is bloodbending, and he uses it. And like you said, it leads to him unraveling. And as Korra is taken away, she sees flashes to Aang's past that expands a little bit more on what she had seen before when Amon confronted her on Air Temple Island and were left with so many questions with Korra on her way out of the city, unknown to where she's going to go. So that concludes our... uh, Episode eight, when extremes meet review, uh, folks, thank you so much again for listening. Um, and, uh, I mean, gosh, I, every time I come back to Cora, I just uh, forget how incredible this show is. I mean, they really, this, this first season is just such a knockout. Um, and I mean, just how, how much happens over the course of this episode and how impactful it is. It's, it's fantastic. Um, so Kevin, Kristen, thank you so much uh, for joining me again for this. Thanks for having us. 
Thank you. Hashtag uh, Occupy Republic City. Yes, I like that. (laughs) Uh, So remember, folks, you can find us on social media, Legend of Portalcast at Facebook and Instagram, uh, Portalcast Pod on Twitter, and our website, legendofportalcast.com. Be sure to uh, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify if you haven't already. And if you have, feel free to leave us a rating and review because we appreciate it. Uh, but again, thank you all so much for your support uh, and, uh, be sure to tune in for uh, next week. We'll be back with another episode. Uh, we're going to be diving into, uh, some avatar comics. Uh, so be sure to, uh, stay on the lookout for that. Thank you so much guys. But for now, let us leave. <laughs> <laughs>